welcome to the Geek Saga podcast series, Hot D Takes, covering HBO's House of the Dragon, episode by episode. Hi, I'm Tara Lynn of Geek Saga Entertainment, and welcome to Hot D Takes. This podcast series covers HBO's House of the Dragon episode by episode with myself, an avid reader of all things Aeswath, and my friend Manny, a Game of Thrones fan who is unsullied by the books, being your stalwart hosts. So first things first, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at A Geek Saga. And I'm Manny, the aforementioned unsullied co-host, and you can find me online at Instagram and Facebook under Benissimo Art, but I recommend that you don't do it for a few years until I get good at what I'm doing. Right now, it just looks like third grader art, so just avoid it at all costs. Thanks for joining us this episode. We will cover House of the Dragon premiere titled Heir of the Dragon. Now, as this is the very first episode of our Hot D-Take series, I wanted to give a brief explanation of how things will go. First, and most obvious, expect spoilers from the episode we're covering. But less obvious, there will be very minimal book spoilers from Fire and Blood, which is, of course, the source material for House of the Dragon. So we'll start with an episode summary, then cover what we think are the main hot takes from the episode, and conclude with an episode-specific favorites roundup. We also have a rating system that we will, like true Targaryens, fill in when and where we please. And that system includes rating things on a scale of 1 to 10 Targ eyebrows. Last but not least, each week we'll be joined by a different special guest, but... In honor of the premiere, this time we have two special guests, Patrick and Dan. Patrick is our unsullied guest, while Dan is a fellow ASWAF reader like myself. Guys, where can everyone find you on social media, if anywhere? Hello, I'm Patrick Fortune. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, To answer your question, they cannot, because I don't have anything other than Facebook, and my Facebook is only for people that I know IRL. (laughs) That sounds uh, remarkably sane, Patrick. I don't know what you're doing here. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah I, I probably should get on board with like instagram at least but i don't know maybe one day i'm dan you can find me on twitter at dan hell pepper i may or may not talk about a song of ice and fire things i don't promise anything uh you can also look me up on facebook i'll say even less about a song of ice and fire on there but you know if you want to it, i'm dan pepper 980 according to facebook so I guess there are 979 other ones. That's a lot of Dan Peppers, honestly. Yeah, it's surprising. Well, I am super excited to have you guys on. Now, just one last piece of business before we dig in. Don't forget that Geek Saga Entertainment now has a Patreon. With 10 tiers ranging from $1 a month to $40 a month, it offers tons of ways to support us and receive some great perks in return. In fact, we recently updated some of our tiers to include new perks for our $3 per month guard tier and for all tiers from $5 a month and up, including early access to these Hot D podcast episodes. So you can check that out at patreon.com slash geeksaga underscore entertainment. And now it's time for the long and short of it, our weekly episode summary. As we finally revisit Westeros in Heirs of the Dragon, House Targaryen is at the height of its power. While the reign of the old king Jaehaerys and good queen Alysanne is coming to an end without them leaving an obvious heir, at least according to that good old Westerosi patriarchy, they have convened a great council at Harrenhal and pass over Jaehaerys and Alysanne's oldest living heir, Rhaenys, in favor of his oldest male heir, Viserys. 
Rainies isn't too happy, and rightfully so, but it's time to fast forward nine years into Viserys' reign, which, the show makes sure to point out, is 172 years before the birth of Daenerys Targaryen. And then we immediately meet Princess Rhaenyra, who swoops in on Dragonback to serve wine at one small council meeting. Right away, it's clear that things aren't all dragon riding in cakes, as Corliss Valerion points out a problematic alliance forming in the free cities and is basically ignored because obviously the most important thing right now is the tourney being planned in honor of the birth of what everyone insists will be Viserys' son and heir. Unfortunately, Viserys' brother Daemon thinks he should be the heir, and now he's back in King's Landing to play creepy uncle to Rhaenyra. Seriously. Ew. And command the City Watch to, well, basically spread fear amongst the small folk who may or may not be criminals by chopping off some not-so-hot Ds, hands, and heads, which, in true HBO fashion, we see in some pretty gory detail. While Viserys is certain Queen Emma is about to give birth to a son, he's been pretty stressed lately, and it doesn't help that the Iron Throne, a much more book-accurate Iron Throne, mind you, keeps biting him, and his latest wound won't heal. Damon's Night of Slaughter, of course, only adds to the king's stresses. But hey, what better way to alleviate some stress than a big old fancy violent tourney? Damon spends most of it trolling Otto Hightower, current hand of the king, but Viserys is pulled away as Emma is in the midst of a very difficult labor, one that unfortunately leads to Viserys having to make a very difficult choice, lose both wife and baby, or order a frighteningly medieval C-section to save the child. This scene is partnered with more tourney drama, in this case Damon jousting against, and losing to, a new-to-the-list but extremely talented Dornish knight named Sir Kristen Cole. Queen Emma succumbs to her bed of blood, and while the baby is a boy, we soon learn that he also died a few hours later. And before their pyre is cold, good old Otto is already demanding that Viserys figure out that pesky succession problem. Shockingly, sarcasm, no one wants Damon on the throne, and Rhaenyra's claim is also waved away because, oh no, she's a girl! Granted, good old Otto is there to send his daughter Alicent, close friend of Rhaenyra, to comfort King Viserys, while nothing untoward happens. Yet. He's playing yield Game of Thrones for sure, and his his work is only compounded when Damon throws a big brothel party, and he and his gold cloaks toast to the heir of the day. Viserys confronts Damon and banishes him to the Vale, where his bronze bitch of a wife awaits him, because as it turns out, Viserys has decided that Rhaenyra will in fact be his heir. He meets with her at what appears to be a shrine to Balerion and informs her of a dream that Aegon the Conqueror has passed down, a dream of a terrible winter in the north, one of which all of Westeros must stand against. That it will only end if a Targaryen, a king or queen strong enough to unite everyone, against the cold and dark, is sitting on the Iron Throne. And thus, Viserys names Rhaenyra his heir, and the lords of Westeros come forward to pledge fealty to her. So that's our summary, and now we can actually talk about the episode! So, we're going to start with hot take number one. From the very beginning of the episode, we're going to discuss the history slash background that they give us, the episode kickoff. I thought the pacing of and info in the Great Council of Hall history was done really well. I know that a lot of people don't like stuff like that. They don't like to be sort of tossed that history, but I really liked it. As a book reader, I, I felt like this isn't too much, but I want to, I really, I want to hear particularly, Dan, if you are 
worried that things were left out or, and, and Manny and Patrick, what you guys felt about it as people who haven't read the books and are kind of coming into this blind. No, I thought it was really well done. Like, I mean, the gold standard to, for those things is always the one from the Lord of the Rings movies where, you know, they, Peter Jackson and, and as co-writers like catch you up on, you know, what is it? 10, 10,000 years of history or something in, you know, like five minutes of screen time and you kind of need it all. So I, I thought this had, you know, maybe it's not as good as that, but you know, it had good pacing and like you said, and I don't. I thought it did a good job of like telling you everything you needed to know to understand what was going forward, but not like getting into every single thing. Like we don't hear, like, oh, this, you know, you know, Jaharis and Alisane actually had like ten kids, and they all either died or ran off to Essos, and you know, you don't get any of that detail, but you just get what what you needed there. I'm I'm curious to hear what you guys think of it, though. I'm glad that you brought up like the whole like. Lord of the Rings kind of opening, you know, because that is something that really appeals to me when when I'm kind of jumping into a world that I'm unfamiliar with. Like, yeah, I'm unfamiliar. I'm, I'm familiar with like, you know, Game of Thrones and that. I haven't, I haven't read the books. So this part of the story, like, I, I don't know anything about, you know, so it's like, how is, how is it going to do a job of kind of bringing me in there? And I thought they did a fantastic job about not talking too much about it, but doing just enough to kind of just enter me in there right where I needed to be. And honestly, within the first you know, five or 10 minutes of that scene. Like I felt like, okay, I'm part of this universe. So I thought that they did a really good job and had a really good balance with that opening personally. Yeah. I agree with everything you guys are saying. Um, I think it did a great job of really instantly bringing us into that tone and that setting that we're used to in game of Thrones. Um, and, uh, I didn't catch until the second time that I watched the episode that the person narrating that intro was Rhaenyra um i I am unsullied like 99 percent unsullied i have not read any of the books but i've participated in the fandom long enough to kind of know a lot of what goes on in the books um but i definitely did not know anything about um this viserys targaryen or how many children he had so when she said my father i was like this could be anybody right now I know he's only got the one kid so far. I also want to give HBO props because I have badmouthed them for a lot of years for their technology. Their content is amazing. And it has always blown my mind that their servers have always been such crap. Sorry to say. The first few minutes are always like not even 720p. It's like the fuzziest, grainiest, whatever. Whatever you boot up on their streaming service. Um, so this time around when I heard that the show was going to be in 4K, I was like, Okay, I'll believe it when I see it. But right away, I mean, right away, the very first second, the quality was great, and it and it kept uh, kept up in 4K uh, resolution the whole way through for me. So I just wanted to give HBO props while we're talking about the very beginning of the episode. I specifically waited an hour after it aired <laughs> because I knew everyone was going to watch it, sure. and I'm like, I'm just going to wait because I have really good internet in my house, so I knew it wasn't going to be like me. But I was like, you know what? Everyone's going to watch this. I'm going to wait an hour because I was worried about that. Because you're absolutely right. When most of those shows come out, the first half of it, you're just getting 720p, even if it's really 480, sure. you know, and it looks like garbage. And for a show like that, you do want to see it in 4K. You want to see it because absolutely. of the beautiful sets and the outfits and everything. 
Yeah, no, I jumped in. At, they actually released it a few minutes before uh, nine o'clock. So um, I, I jumped in as soon as it was available and the quality was great the whole time. So I was very impressed. Good job, HBO. They probably wanted to get their stuff together in time for this series because they knew a lot of people would be coming back to uh, their network for it. So. See, the funny thing is, I actually, I had at least one friend who lives in Colorado, so Mountain Time, who had problems getting the episode to play at all. And I did see an article saying that their server is crashed again, and they're blaming, they're somehow blaming it on Amazon. I, I don't, I, I guess maybe if you, <laughs> there might be a way you get HBO with Amazon Prime, I don't know. Oh no, mommy and daddy are fighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, I only had that one friend say she had problems with it. So apparently they've, at the very least, they have done better with their servers than they used to. Not just the low quality, but also the fact that there were times where it just wouldn't play sure. at the beginning of the episode, especially for premieres and season sure. finales. Now, before we move on to the next thing, the other big thing to talk about when it comes to the opening is... And Patrick and I have already been going on about this. There was no, no opening. opening theme. Oh my like, gosh. That really disappointed me because I was theme. such a fan of the Game of Thrones. Like that was like I mean, I... that's almost the best part of Game of Thrones. Exactly. The, the little miniatures and all that kind of stuff. And I'm a huge fan of that like aesthetic. So when I saw that, I was like, I don't care if the show's garbage, I'm gonna watch it just for the opening, you know, kind of sequence. And I was so disappointed with how lazy this one was. I was like, like the music's good, obviously, but it was just like, man, that's it. That's all you guys got, you know. I've seen a lot of people online point out that there seems to be a trend of newer shows where for the first episode, they don't have the title sequence because they just want to get you right in. But then in the second one and going forward, they do. So hopefully that'll be the case with this one. Fingers crossed. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I actually think that's interesting because I have a friend who is obsessed with opening themes for shows just overall. And she's been complaining for years that most new shows don't have them at all. So as soon as this one didn't, I was really worried that I guess we'll see on Sunday, episode two, whether or not they're going to have an opening theme, fingers crossed. But I would not at this point be shocked if they didn't, because yeah. apparently that's a thing that they're just not spending the money on that they were in, you know, 2011. And they weren't going to stop having an opening theme for Game of Thrones. Just like, I mean, God, how long has Westworld been happening? And they still have their full opening theme. But this is a show that's been going on for years and years. So yeah, we'll see you next week, I guess. Yeah, you know, and I think that the opening, you know, thing and everything is extremely important because I don't have any good examples like that, that that come to mind. But you remember when a show has an opening theme every episode and then they have that one episode at the end of the season that just jumps right into the episode. And there's like Hold this open, kind yeah. of, yeah, and there's kind of like this, like this ominous fear when something like that happens because you're like, wait a minute, we're just jumping right into this. Like, what's going to happen? Game of Thrones had like maybe five or six of those. I remember one of them was the one where you thought the hound was was dead, right? Arya left him for dead. And then we have a cold open and you're like, okay, what's going on? Something big has to be happening. And then of course it pans to Sandor and Clegane and you're like, mind blown. Yeah, yeah. yeah. cold opens are always fun. Here's a super old example, but back in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer days when they did the musical episode and you watch the, you watch the credits and the credits were totally different. They were like, 
you know, they they had like a an old style TV theme, and you're like, what is going on? This is so weird. But yeah, I I really hate the the trend for no no opening themes. The Expanse like barely had one for the first couple of seasons, but then they added it in and kind of they did kind of the same thing as Game of Thrones did, where they sort of were showing you different locations. And but they they kind of did it better actually I thought because they were doing it on like a solar system wide level. I knew that they weren't going to do a locations thing like they did with Game of Thrones because so much of this show is going to be in King's Landing, just so much of it. And so I wasn't expecting that, but I was some, I was expecting something. So I don't know. I guess we'll see on episode two. Definitely zero out of ten Targaryen eyebrows yeah. for that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Boo, boo, <laughs> what the hell? Like just yeah. a whole, just burn them right just, off. It's 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 no Damon's it's it's Damon's yeah. complete lack of eyebrows. Exactly. I have Matt Smith actual eyebrows, not there. <laughs> you know. Oh, that was so weird to me. And I guess I should have said that that's that's kind of why I chose <laughs> Targaryen, like Targ eyebrows as the rating system because some of them have eyebrows. Uh, Rhaenyra has very light eyebrows, and like em- Queen Emma barely like has none at all hardly and Damon has zero so Damon is kind of the worst right now as at least so far as we've seen so uh yeah zero out of ten targ eyebrows for the lack of of opening theme (laughs) so hot take number two I just want to get this out of the way and I'm hoping I'm not the only person here that felt this way because I certainly know I'm not the only person in my household or of the couple of people I've talked to that felt this way the CGI was not so great. I'm giving it like four out of 10 Targ eyebrows at best, to be quite honest. At the beginning, the Cyrax flight into King's Landing was great when it was far away. Yeah, maybe not great. It was good when it was far away. But as soon as Cyrax landed, it was like, well, no, what is going on here? Then there was that carriage. Did you guys notice the weird carriage? Yes. It, it looked, it was almost cartoony in its movement. It was not CGI. It was real, but it almost looked. Are we know. sure? Because. I, I'm, yes. I'm fairly certain that it was not CGI. <laughs> I, I, I like the more I looked at it, I was like, is that a CGI carriage? Like it's so I bad. So. I don't it think so. It looks like it's drawn in. <laughs> Maybe there was a green screen effect going on that made it look weird. I don't know. My theory is that they had to put a CGI carriage over the real carriage because there were coffee cups all along the side. (laughs) (laughs) There were Starbucks Starbucks coffee. Yeah. No, I'm right there with you. When when the first dragon scene came out and it was like, okay, it was at a distance. It looked great. And then when it got close, it was very like Pixar to me. You know, there was just like a separation there where I was like... Uh, and I think I kind of gathered what they were doing. I know that everyone had a problem with the way that the show ended, uh, Game of Thrones, you know, ended that I felt like maybe they just had a smaller budget, maybe, you know, or, but I don't know either, because I think that's, that's kind of been a trend with a lot of, uh, special effects lately within the past year or two, really, that they seem to be going lower in quality for some reason. Um, but it definitely, it it definitely wasn't there. Like, like, you know, when, when, when the dragons came out, you know, in Game of Thrones, I felt like those looked way better. It was like when they came, they were just like larger than life. And it was like, and even in the scene where he's going down and he burns, you know, the like f- uh, funeral pyre or whatever, it just, 
it just didn't sit well with me, you know? Like, I mean, I had enough, like, separation of, like, belief to where I was like, okay, I, this is what's happening, but I don't know. It just that was wasn't. just, like, a bizarre staging where they had the dragon on top of the hill, and then it, and then she gives the Drakari's command, and I was like, well, don't say that. He's just going to burn the whole crowd. Yeah. <laughs> but, then he, but then for some reason, he knows that he has to walk down the hill on his little dragon wings, yeah. and then, ooh. <laughs> Do a little Dracarys and set the funeral pyre alight. Like, I mean, I know I'm a weirdo, but that was like a scene that really bothered the hell out of me. Like, this makes no sense. What are you doing, HBO? But uh, Manny, it's it's funny you mentioned the like the bells and you know the whole. I mean, I guess we're doing spoilers for Game of Thrones here, right? Like, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody's uh, watching this in chronological order. They're gonna like <laughs> watch House of the Dragon and then watch Game of Thrones. But, like, I think they were intentionally trying to echo, you know, Daenerys flying over the city and then burning it to fuck with her, you know, with Rhaenyra's little flight over the city there. So, like, I, I think that was supposed, you were, I think you were supposed to think of that when they, when they showed some of the shots, because some of the shots were, like, almost exactly. Almost exactly. And that's what I felt. Like, when I watched it, it made me think of, you know, of that scene. And I was like, oh, okay, I, you know, I kind of see what they're doing. If, they, if that's what they're doing, I can see it. That's cool. You know? So this is where uh, I'm going to sound like a total fanboy because I'm one of the three people in the world that still loves Game of Thrones, including the last few seasons. And so I'm one of the only people that's ever defending it. And I'm happy to still be that person today. <laughs> I didn't think the CGI was any worse than Game of Thrones. I think it was about the same. Um, I actually loved the scene where the funeral scene where the dragon was up on the hill. It reminded me of the scene in Game of Thrones where um, the field of fire had just happened. Da Daenerys had just won kind of her big first battle on Westerosi soil. And she's got uh, Drogon standing up on the hill, kind of looming over all these people. That's the scene where she like burns the Tarleys and whatnot. I, and, and it reminded me of that. And I thought that was a cool callback. Um, I think that it makes perfect sense that this dragon has done a whole bunch of funerals and perhaps has been trained. I mean, we see in the very beginning that there are people specifically that existing to train the dragons and their various commands and all that stuff. Um, and the, and the dragons know what these commands mean and they're willing to comply. So I think all that made perfect sense to me, but um, I'm sure half the people listening are rolling their eyes at me right now. And that is just fine with me. <laughs> the one CGI part that I thought was a little shaky was kind of the red keep that, that scene where we did have the, um, the carriage rolling in, it was clear that they built physical gates. And then behind that was all CGI stuff. And I don't think the two blended together quite as well as what they were trying to accomplish, but that's just my take. Yeah, I noticed that scene too, where like the angle seemed off somehow. Like the red keep was sort of like almost looked like it was bent some somehow. The red keep shot was bad. As much as I was kind of meh about some of the dragon stuff, most particularly in the beginning, like I said, like when Cirax lands and everything, and the carriage looking weird, and me still not being sure that that was actually real. But <laughs> yeah, the pan up on the red keep my partner was kind of like, oh God, this is like 2014 level CGI. Come on guys, you got, you got to do better than this. And their budget has to be huge, right? I mean, one would think. So hopefully it gets better going forward. And you know, to kind of like back up your, your uh, case here, Patrick, which I'm actually going to totally agree with you on this now, because you kind of changed my mind on this is that when doing the funeral scene, 
and the dragon doesn't burn everything down. One thing that I kind of thought about is like, wait a minute, like the dragons have been around for a while at this point at what we're watching. The dragons in Game of Thrones, they were gone for a while, right? And it's like it's like having, you know, a, 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 just a flock of dogs and they all kind of learn from each other. They know what to do and you've had them forever. And then you don't have a dog for a hundred years, right? And then you get one. And even if you've had it for 20 years or 15 years, it's still going through like a training process. So that actually sure, kind of makes sense. And it's not just the animal, it's the humans that are training them, right? I mean, when when we see Daenerys get dragons, nobody knows how to handle dragons. Nope. But presumably in House of the Dragon, we have had several generations of dragon handlers that know what they're yep. doing. Yeah, that's a good that's a good one. Also, I mean, regardless of what you thought about the CGI in that scene or the dragon knowing the command and having to poop, poop, poop down the hill to burn the pyre, Undertaker dragon. He's just trained to specifically <laughs> burn Targaryen funeral pyres. Why not? Listen, it's they, a fantasy. Uh, it's doctor, a fantasy. I mean, we, we've seen instances in Game of Thrones where the dragons just seem to be able to read the minds of their masters, where they just kind of know what the master is commanding them to do. Maybe it's just a magical connection that Targaryens have with the dragons, or maybe it's just a bunch of bullshit who knows <laughs> oh there's there's for sure a connection there that's something that's definitely explored in the earlier texts that said i'm still kind of mm, i think not to jump too far ahead but viserys's comment at the end of the episode where he's saying you know they think we control the dragons but that's kind of hilarious well we do not <laughs> we're, we're we're messing with a power we don't right. really completely understand right. so he wouldn't have said that if it's not something that won't come into play later but but yes there is definitely i mean you see it with daenerys too in game of thrones that's definitely a connection that's that's there and the fact that they've had all this experience and, and they haven't had that big break of no dragons is helpful. So I guess you make a good point, Patrick, about how, you know, yeah, the dragons are better trained at this point. So like maybe, maybe that scene does make a little more, bit more sense. I don't know, but when, and like the, and like you pointed out, like those guys in the uniforms, like those they're mentioned in the books. I think they're called dragon keepers. If I remember right, the guys who, work at the dragon pit and and uh, just hang out with the dragons all day when their masters are off, you know, Targaryening elsewhere. Just as far as the, you know, what we were talking about with the connection between Targaryens and dragons, like, you know, that's, that's something I would expect to be important to the show's plot going forward, just to, you know, just to, me just to mention that, you know, like how, how people have that connection and how it works. Yeah, I mean, Game of Thrones kind of always left that question kind of open-ended. I mean, we saw so long, I guess it was it was perhaps just the dragons in their teenage phase, but we saw the, the, the era where Danny had to lock up her dragons because they were uncontrollable. Um, but then all of a sudden they reached a stage of development where she seemed to be able to just hop on their back and tell them what to do. So I think this universe has always, I suspect that it is, leaving it up to us to interpret just how much or how little control Targaryens have over their dragons. I think we'll definitely see more of that going forward. So hot take number three, those Targ bros, motherfuckers. We're talking about Viserys and Damon here. We'll start with Viserys. I kind of lumped this together because these are obviously our two main 
uh, male Targaryen characters. Thoughts on Viserys. One thing I wanted to bring up is that in doing some research, reading up on things before the San Diego Comic-Con panel I was on back in July, I saw an article where George R. R. Martin said that he didn't love writing Viserys I in Fire and Blood, but that the show makes him a much more tragic character. I'll say this, I get the tragic, but I'm feeling a, like a little bit less tragic and a little bit more frustrating from Viserys. So there's that. But that said, he does seem to be taking a bit more, maybe a lot more of a lead in actually ruling than is described in the text. So there is that. However, I am side-eyeing how much he trusts Otto Hightower. And I don't want to go into detail there, but I'm side-eyeing it real hard. And I think even just watching this episode and never having read a thing, you can probably see that good old Otto isn't all that he seems. My hot take with him is that he just kind of comes off as like a, a, a more inept, like Eddard Stark, right? Like you can tell he's like not a bad guy. He's like a you can tell he's like he's a good guy. You know, he's not but he seems like somebody who like I don't want in control of the ship, you know, because I feel like when things really gets rough, he just doesn't come off and have like those leadership qualities. Like he is a leader because he is he's on the throne, but don't really get that kind of leader vibe from him. Like I know he'll do the right thing, but not really like a leader vibe. So but again, I think that brings an interesting dynamic because obviously what, you know, what will probably happen through his time on the throne. But that's 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 my take on him, I think. Yeah, I can see that. To me, I wonder, I mean, sure, we can look for someone that has what we might see as leadership skills or we can look for someone that's going to make good decisions. Right. Ned Stark was a good guy, but he wasn't good at like playing the game. But does that mean we should disregard him totally as someone who can lead? I don't know. I, I would love to see someone in a perfect world. Of course, we want to see someone that's going to make good decisions rather than someone that's going to be ruthless. But I know that this is Westeros. This is not a perfect world. And so you do need someone that's going to be willing to do some really tough things. I'm sympathetic to Viserys. I, I want him to succeed because he seems like a decent person. But I can definitely understand why his brother would call him weak. And as far as Otto goes, I, I being unsolid as I am, I don't know much about this guy. I noticed that he sent at some point right after the kind of disastrous small council meeting, Otto sent that letter off to Hightower saying who knows what, saying, I don't know, the king's not going to pick an heir, so we're going to have to do something about it ourselves. I don't know. Like Like Tara was saying, he does seem a little sus. So I'm not sure um, if I like the fact that Viserys trusts him so much, but I don't know their background. So I don't know if Otto has been like a good friend to this guy forever. And, and that's why he is so trusting in him. Yeah, I'm not sure quite what to make of Viserys. I love his little prophecy dream thing. I'm, I'm, prophecies are like my favorite part of any kind of fantasy series. I looked up the quote just so I could read it exactly. He said, the dream, it was clearer than a memory. And I heard the sound of thundering hooves, splintering shields and ringing swords. And I placed my air upon the iron throne and all the dragons roared as one. 
And I think there was another part of it where he was talking about he dreamed that he had a son that like came out with a crown on and stuff. I don't know. He seems pretty obsessed about having a boy, but I guess you have to be in this world. So again, I'm of two minds. I want him to succeed and I wish he could make better decisions, but I still understand why he's making the decisions he does. I will say this from the text. Yes, he he always wanted to have a son, right? Because that's the easiest way to ensure that his line continues on the Iron Throne. But he is a lot less hesitant in Fire and Blood to name Rhaenyra his heir. She is literally called the Realm's Delight. Everybody freaking loves her. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But he is definitely a lot more forward about Rhaenyra being his heir if he doesn't have a son even even while he's hoping he will still have one so I think that is important to point out and it's not at this point it's not really a spoiler it's just a different uh it's a different take it's interesting to me that his relationship with Rhaenyra seemed a little bit cooler in the show in this episode up until the end really than it ever did in the books or in in the book in fire and blood i also saw that martin quote that you mentioned like bouncing around twitter and in the first episode yeah it's really borne out like viserys in in fire and blood is sort of like there's all there's this illustration that's in there several times of him like sitting there with a wine glass like laughing is like obviously laughing his ass off like that's sort of more of the image you get of Viserys in the in Fire and Blood that he was, you know, kind of just wanted to have a good time, and I always kind of got the impression that maybe he named Rhaenyra his heir, not so much because, you know, because he thought she should rule, but just so people would stop asking him, and just wanted it to, you know, just wanted to not have to deal with it. Like there was a lot of that with it. Like he was kind of the guy who just wanted to, you know have feasts and you know and parties and drink and just not be bothered by so much of the ruling business but the show character seems like you know like Tara said he's much more engaged in the government and you know seems to give a shit about stuff a lot more I, I think the show is trying to sprinkle a little bit of that fun part of him in because like the very first line we hear from him is a joke like I and, and then I said, I, you might be looking up the wrong end or something like that. And everybody laughs, right? So I think they were trying to sprinkle in his fun side. They may be choosing to, like, you know, kind of start him at a different place and we'll get more of the Viserys that we saw in, the, in Fire and Blood a little bit, you know, as, as it goes forward, maybe. But, you know, we'll see. Some of that could also be the show might picture it as sort of an aftermath of him losing his wife, right? Like right now he's sad, but there are stages of grief. So we'll see. Now, the other bro, Damon. So listen, I gotta be honest. I am not a fan of Matt Smith's looks. I'm sorry, not sorry about that. His face looks like a foot. Yeah, I've always wondered why all my girlfriends that like watch Doctor Who had such a big crush on him. I think it's a uh, now that I've seen him act, I think it's about the attitude mostly. It's the charisma, yeah. It's it's certainly, charisma. it can't be the looks. Yeah, and and 
to be quite honest, having never watched Doctor Who, again, sorry, not sorry, it's not hard for me to see him as a villain, which is a thing that a lot of my friends who are fans of Doctor Who are ta- have been talking about. Like, he's he's had sort of not good guy or even villainous <laughs> Morbius. <laughs> that movie that nobody watched sony so it's not hard for me to see him as a villain because i never watched doctor who but at the same time as much as i am not a fan of his looks you know i i he clearly like you said has the acting chops for this role and he's pretty much a jerk in this show from what i'm seeing so far i in i in Fire and Blood, he's this isn't super different from the way he is pictured in Fire and Blood. I just I think I pictured him as being way more attractive. So I'm having a little bit of trouble connecting those dots. But he's pretty much a jerk right now. But based on what I have seen so far, he's not wrong about Viserys's small council members kind of pandering to him. And or they're both pandering to him. And also being in the background with their own, well, particularly good old Otto Hightower. I'm just going to call him good old Otto for the rest of this podcast series. (laughs) Good old Otto is clearly having his own plots in the background, just saying. And I did, I just... Him constantly trolling Otto Hightower was just hilarious to me. Even if Otto had been a good guy... I think I still would have been kind of <laughs> about Damon just constantly just just negging him, you know. I, I honestly loved that because I I know that good old Otto's up to something, so like that didn't phase me at all. I was like, yeah, you know, pick it up a little jab it a little bit, you know, it's fine. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out exactly what Damon's motivations are, you know, and I think that's the point. You see him in the scene where what I referenced to earlier as the disastrous small council meeting, or maybe it was a different meeting, I don't know, where uh, they were talking about the line of succession and um, that it was that one yeah, because yeah. someone someone hinted that, you know, Damon might murder Viserys to try to get the crown and Viserys was like, well, he doesn't even want the crown. And then it cuts to Damon listening unbeknownst to the rest of the, the members of the small council. And he smirks at that line that he doesn't want the throne. And I can't tell if that was a smirk of like, you dumbass, of course I want it. There was a really great line at that moment too. I enjoyed the writing in this episode Mm -hmm. where Otto said, I wrote it down, the gods have yet to make a man that lacks the patience for absolute power, your grace. And so maybe Damon really secretly does want the throne. Um, But I did listen to an interview with Ryan Condal, who is one of the showrunners and actually wrote this episode where he said that Damon's main thing that he wants is just to be close to his brother. He just wants to be physically nearby him. Um, so it's one of those two. Do you just want to be close to your brother or do you really want power? I'm not sure yet. I think that's an interesting take on Ryan Condal's part. And I know he has read the, it, it, like, I know he's read Fire and Blood. He's a huge ASWA fan. And that's why George R. R. Martin literally handpicked him to run this series but i think that between like what you said the the smirk on damon's face but also earlier in the episode when he's just chilling uh, like just laid back on the iron throne when renera walks in and, and she's like they're planning to celebrate the birth of my 
possible brother and he's like but i'm the heir bitch i mean that's, that's not true that's, that's true. not he what does, he says but he, he does always take the opportunity to run to remind people that he is legally the next up yeah the scene that really struck me with damon though was that and i thought they did a really good job and matt smith did a really good job with this even though i totally agree with you about you know he's not sexy enough to be damon damon's supposed to be way sexier but the scene where at the funeral where he's the one who comes up and says to Rhaenyra like you know they're all waiting for you you gotta light the pyre now and like he was sort of the only one who had like a tender moment for her there because she, she even like calls it out later where she says Viserys hasn't talked to her basically since since her mom died and you know I thought that was a really neat moment of you know giving a little bit of complexity to Damon, where he's not just entirely a dick all the time like he can actually be nice and tender to his family like and it was you know it was just a, like a really short line but it's just like the way he said it like he clearly was trying to reach out to his niece and you know just be nice to there i thought that was a really neat moment that i didn't really expect based on the you know the character from the books i'm honestly a little bit torn on that as the only femme presenting person here. My thought is he was playing creepy uncle to Rhaenyra earlier in the episode. And well, let, let me say this. I don't disagree with Ryan Condal's thought that Damon just wants to be close to his brother. I don't necessarily know that it's for all the right reasons. And I also don't disagree with you, Dan, that there was that moment between them. But I also feel like a part of that could just be Damon being manipulative in terms of Rhaenyra particularly. So it'll be interesting to see how their relationship plays out this season, to be honest. Just like I said, as, as a femme presenting person, I saw a lot of what he was doing, particularly with Rhaenyra as being manipulative, showing up, talking to her about the air thing, but also like giving her a gift and being kind of weirdly sexual about giving his like little niece a gift. Like, listen, I'm sorry. I know you're Targaryens that don't make it right. Y'all. I thought that scene was a little creepy. Yeah. When he gives the necklace, I was like, yeah. Yeah. So she's like a teenager. She's like a cute little teenage girl. And he's like, let me put this necklace around your neck. Uh, Yeah. I don't like it. I don't like it. My take on like a like Matt Smith, right? Because some of you guys haven't watched Doctor Who, some of you guys have. Like, so Matt Smith, like that was one of my favorite runs of Doctor Who, right? Like, I didn't like him at first. The first few episodes, I was like, I can't do this. Like, whatever, it's just weird. But he really grew. I mean, he became like the one of the best arcs that I saw. So, in saying that, I think Matt Smith is perfectly cast in this for me, personally. Because he comes off, the way he's acting, he comes off to me as completely repulsive because of who I, you know, it's like, it's like having a really good friend who's been your friend for a very long time. And then they go like, you know, they go somewhere else and you're just like, dude, this person's nuts. I can't even with this person anymore. So my personal opinion is that it works perfect for me. I mean, I know that he's not attractive, but I think he's kind of cute, honestly. Like, there's something about him that I think that is a little attraction there, you know? So, but the way he's behaving in this is just so repulsive to me that, like, it kind of builds and, and kind of amplifies what his character is to me personally. To where I'm like, dude, 
you're just like a wreck, you know, and you're just evil and, uh, you know, I don't know. It's like an uncanny valley kind of thing, you know? I'd give him like two out of 10 Targ eyebrows for looks. And that's, that's being generous. But you know, sometimes, (laughs) you know, like there's people who are not like conventionally attractive, but because you know them and you kind of have a connection with them, it automatically Mm -hmm. gives them a few points. So that's where, that's where I'm at with like Matt Smith on this. Like, yes. Okay. He's not, you know, I guess conventionally attractive, but he's, you know, he's a little attractive. This is Matt Smith, and I, and I kind of not really know him, but, you know, in my brain, I know him. So, yeah. you know, I think it's a little different, you know? I mean, I don't think, I, I think he's great. I think he's, so far, I'm impressed with his acting skills. And as far as his looks go, I'll just say I wasn't really sad in his nude scene. I wasn't upset. That's all. That's all I'll say. That's funny because I was just like, you, Matt Smith, but <laughs> his girlfriend, they didn't name her, but by the way, her name is Masaria. She is also known later as Lady Misery. She becomes very important. And I didn't recognize that that's who it was at first. It took when he brought her to meet or to pet Caraxes that I was like, oh, okay, now I know who that is. Because at first I was like, oh, he's just in a brothel, right? Like, this is just a sex worker and he's having his troubles. <laughs> troubles, that, troubles and travails. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it wasn't the worst butt i've ever seen but i would give it i would give it seven out of ten targ targ eyebrows oh okay that's more eyebrows than he has in the show so. yeah it's like there's more eyebrows exactly <laughs> i'd give him a six out of ten i'll give him a six out of ten <laughs> i was talking just about the butt well, that's what I, yeah that's what we're talking are we not yeah. talking about okay, that? Fair, that? Fair, okay fair fair yeah okay six out of ten all right, so hot take four. It's tournament time, y'all. So this was a much bigger and fancier tournament than the like two that we saw in Game of Thrones. I'm pretty sure it was just the the Hand of the King tournament and then Renly's tournament, which were very simple. And particularly Renly's was just very brief. Catelyn comes in at the end of it for the melee and that's basically all you see but this tournament was just over the top like super extra i freaking loved it because this is also the height of everything and also i know that this is the tournament they would have had in game of thrones if they'd had the budget for it fantastic i loved it i loved every second of it the the jousting everything that are you know the shields breaking and the, the jousting staffs like breaking i was in love with that scene i loved it damon's helm was just chef's kiss i mean this is something that in the books their tournament armor specifically i mean it's it's just armor is described so often throughout the books but in the tournaments it's martin actually has the time to spend right describing their armor and it's always insanely over the top like nobody should be Really, nobody should be wearing this shit in a tournament, let alone in a war. But apparently they were doing both. But the fact that they finally had one of those actual helms and it. Again, it was not as over the top as what is described in the books. But it, it was up there, man. The wings and the fringe on the back. Let's call it that. The giant wings. Or, well, maybe not giant, but the wings on the helm. When I saw that, I basically squealed and... My partner was like, the fuck is wrong with you? And I was like, do you not see this? Like, it's still not as over the top as what you read about, but which he hasn't read the books either. It's like still not as over the top as what you read about, but 
this is the first time we've actually seen a helm that is ridiculous. Again, just like the tournament, extra. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. His 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 armor, his entire getup, you know, being like like a Final Fantasy nerd and never getting to see like a like like a dragoon knight or like a lancer and to get to see it that like in, very in dragoon, real life. You're right. Yeah. And it was just like it was the first time I've seen something like that in a costume like live. And to me that was where my head completely went. And I was like, I am absolutely totally in love with this armor. Like and I loved it. It was fantastic. Ten out of ten. 10 out of 10 Targaryen eyebrows for the helmet. Yeah, I, I really loved the, the helm there too. And they did go a little bit more colorful in, in House of the Dragon than I remembered Game of Thrones being, I thought. That's always one of the things that really bugged me about Game of Thrones is that, you know, it's like, there's like this famous quote from George R. R. Martin where he talks about, you know, people read fantasy because they want to see the colors and he, he like lists all these, you know, azures and turquoises and lapis lazulis and then you watch game of thrones and it's like everything's gray oh here's some brown but you know house of the dragon they seemed like they were going to get into that a little bit more because like the you know the armor that tara is talking about is like that's not even by far the most over-the-top armor in the books like if you've ever seen the francis ford coppola dracula with gary oldman where at the yep. beginning he's got like that muscle armor, muscle armor. Like yep. that's basically in the books. <laughs> Ramsey Bolton wears that at one point. So like, there's all sorts of just cool over the top shit like that. So it was really cool to see them, you know, grab a little bit of that for the show. Here's a question because I didn't notice it, and now I feel like I have to go back and look. Were there nips on a breastplate? Because that's that's a thing that is a joke among the Aesop fandom. And actually, Martin himself made it a joke in the series. Like, it's useless. Like, nips on a breastplate. I think it's like nipples on a breastplate is what he actually says. But were there, were there nips on those breastplates? Was it Batman and Robin? Yes. Or... Yeah. Batman I'll have Robin to give it a third watch and yeah. look specifically for breastplate nipples. Yeah. I didn't look. I was I was never gonna get I was never gonna get past that helmet anyway, so I was looking at the yeah. helmet the entire time, but I didn't look for nips. But now when I watch it again Oh I'm same, like, I didn't even look at the rest of his armor, so I'm glad that <laughs> I'm glad that somebody else brought it up because I was so like, ah the helmet. Hey. I mean, and again, the rest of the tournament was just over the top. I mean, people getting Fucking morning starred in the face and shit. I noticed a real tonal shift between this episode and Game of Thrones. Um, as far as the overall kind of tone of Game of Thrones. And I was trying to find the best word for it. And the best I could come up with was visceral. And the way that this episode, but particularly this scene was filmed... You could definitely tell that it was the work of Miguel Sapochnik, who is another of the showrunners. He directed this episode. He directed um, a lot of the best, in my opinion, and a lot of the fandoms, uh, the, the best episodes of Game of Thrones. He gave us Hard Home. He gave us The Gift. He gave us Battle of the Bastards. And I could really see that Battle of the Bastards type just zooming in, not even trying to hide the violence at all, making it really in your face. You could really see that in this tournament. And so I don't know if 
again, that's just Miguel's touch and it's just going to be this episode or if that's going to be sort of the tone for the whole series going forward, especially as it overlapped with, I think we're about to talk about the childbirth scene. As it overlapped with that, you want to talk about Visceral? My God. My God. I was a little bit surprised at the violence in the jousting because the melees in the tournaments in A Song of Ice and Fire are the ones that are described as being super violent. I mean, the jousting can be violent. Let's ignore Gregor Clegane because he's... The thing is, that's not supposed to happen. Jousting is... It's sort of... It's like the highborn, like, lord sport. You have to have a good horse. You have to be able to ride really well. You have to be able to handle the lance. Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 I'm not, I'm not even sorry. We're on, then I'd we're be on. the best mouser in the world. I do think that they were replacing melee. Basically they were trying to make up for the fact that they weren't going to have a melee by having that sort of one-on-one jousting violence that I don't really remember ever reading about in the series. Yeah. The, the closest I can think of is that, is the hands turning in game of in the game of thrones where you know gregor tries to do that but sandor jumps out there and stops him but yeah that was when that happened i was like oh that's really they're they're doing that because you know like like tara is saying like you know jousting in westeros is supposed to be roughly you know as formalized as football you know so like i mean it's basically like you know, remember when that stupid quarterback tried to start a fight with a defensive end and ended up getting his helmet ripped off and used as a club against him a couple of years ago in the NFL? Like, it's basically like that, that level of like, oh my God, what's happening? You know, for guys to like really start going at it like that outside of the rules of the jousting. But I mean, they were all shrugging it off like it was NBD. Yeah, like people were not like, like it, it seemed like the the audience should have been a little bit more like freaked out by what was happening because it was so over the top from what they would normally see at a joust instead of it just being Corliss and Rainey's there being like, you know, having like their little conversation about it. But, you know, I think it's, I mean, it's like you said, like they didn't want to do a whole scene. They didn't want to like stop and be like, okay, now's the melee. And we have like, the whole thing as far as like restarting for a whole new event and have that get out of hand. So, you know, I, I get what the show was doing with it, but it was, it was sort of jarring because, you know, that's, that's not how tournaments are supposed to work in this world, I guess. Yeah. And it's not even really a complaint. It's just more like, I was surprised that it happened that way because nobody seemed shocked. Yeah, so it was, it was like a transition. Like it just felt like, like you said, like people, playing football and it gets a little too rough and then you know or when you're playing baseball and the people start fighting it was like that jousting is what the thing is but then people's emotions just kind of take over them and then they're just like no forget it i'm gonna swing an axe at your face now you know (laughs) so i thought the transition between it actually like it made a lot of sense to me because when you get competitive like i don't compete in things period because i get very like heated you know, like I take it very personally. So it's like if I was in a joust, yeah, I might whip out an axe if you beat me one too many times, you know, and be like, okay, well, now this is going to go in your face, you know. <laughs> so I definitely, I, I definitely enjoyed that, that whole, that transition there. This is why I don't PvP. Oh, I don't either. Games. Yes. No, no, no. I take it, I take it 
personally. <laughs> yes. Yes. I will chase you down. I will hunt you down. Yep. In Red Dead for Dead. <laughs> That's why I do not do that online at all. <laughs> On to hot take number five. And Patrick already kind of mentioned this because, like he said, this was sort of interspersed with things that were happening in the tourney, most particularly the jousting and then sort of melee-ish fight between Damon and Kristen Cole, women and childbirth. And this isn't something that I really expected to talk about in regards to the very first episode, but there was an interview where the showrunners talked about how they would be focusing on women and childbirth a lot this season the hardships involved and all that. And wow, they got like right into it. And I'm not saying anything bad, right? At all. But that C-section scene was rough as fuck to watch. Difficult to watch. Difficult. I had a hard time with it, man. Like I'm I'm not a person that's you know what it is, is that you get me in front of like a horror movie where there's all this or even like the Game of Thrones stuff, right? You know, yeah, crazy violence stuff. It doesn't phase me because it's like, oh, it's just fantasy violence, like whatever, okay, whatever. But when you see like the C section, you're like, Oh my god, this happens in real life, like women have to go through this and then we always kind of like you know, everyone talks about like, you know, lineage and giving birth to an heir, but no one ever thinks about what the woman has to go through to produce that error. So to kind of see it and, you know, the, the, the concept of like complications during pregnancy and all this stuff, it, it was really real to me and it, it definitely was difficult to watch. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Um, I actually, I had to fast forward through the first time that I watched it. I, I just couldn't do it. Today I rewatched it and I made myself sit through the whole thing. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with Manny. I'm not normally phased by this sort of thing in, in entertainment media, but there was just, there was just something about it. When you go in, when you first go in and she's just screaming and props to that actress, um, I just looked it up. I think it's pronounced Sean Brooke. Um, she is amazing. I mean, that, that at, at just conveying the horror of that situation. Um, it was just, it was desperately difficult to watch. Like I said, I couldn't even do it the first time. Yeah, the thing that really killed me about it was not so much like the, like, like I mean, like the actual surgery from what they showed, that didn't hit me very much for whatever reason, but the fact that she didn't know what was going on, like Viserys doesn't tell her what they're going to do. He's just like, you know, it's going to be okay. They're going to take the baby out now and doesn't like, let her know what's happening like that was just that just tore me up like holy shit imagine like being in you know being in that situation and they're just they're not explaining what's going on and i mean it made me think of a lot of things that women talk about with their interactions with the medical system is that they don't sort of you know get treated the same way as men do as far as you know being asked and you know for you know, various things as far as consent and what really hit me about it. And of course, this is like medieval fantasy setting, but I think that, and this is something that I saw in the article that I read where they were talking about how they really wanted to focus on the hardships of that is, this is unfortunately 
in, in spite of the fact that it's 2020 fucking two, this is unfortunately like a real life thing that is still a struggle for women, has been a struggle for women, and apparently is going to continue to even be a worse struggle for women because there's no Roe versus Wade anymore. So gore and horror, like I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of it, period. Especially, I feel like a lot of it is just for shock value and is unnecessary, but I can watch it to an extent. But with this, it was the combination of her not knowing really what was going on and that, oh God, that's slicing in the melody. And it's like, you know, it's fake blood, but I'm sitting there as a person with a uterus who is like, no, I don't want to see this ever. And side note, an unsullied friend of mine told me he really thought the baby would be a dragon or something along those lines. And I'll admit that it surprised me that the baby's death wasn't mentioned until he was on the pyre. And there was no comment made about why other than I guess the maester did kind of when he had the baby in his arms have a weird look on his face yeah, the yeah. baby was making kind of a weird, raspy, gurgly noise. Weird, raspy, gurgliness. I had to actually go back on the episode because when I got to that scene and and then, then Damon's going on about, like, you know, air for a day, I was like, wait, what? Like, what are you talking about? And I had to, like, go back and then try to piece it together, like, oh, okay, so that baby didn't make it, I guess, because I felt like it wasn't super clear what happened there. I thought maybe I was just not paying attention but apparently they didn't make it as clear it is super briefly mentioned at the funeral it's half a line by Rhaenyra I believe and I mean the thing is to be fair the heir for a day isn't one of the Targaryen children said to be born with deformities but that does happen because they're all inbred and there's some past history where there might have been like witchcraft involved in people even getting pregnant they mentioned Visenya at, at one point that that's what if it's a girl that was what Rhaenyra wanted to name her and they were all like oh fuck not Visenya <laughs> she is supposed to have used like blood magic or something to get pregnant and then produced Magor the Cruel who you know is worse than his name if anything yeah yeah and he, he got yeah. a name check there too like where everybody was like Damon will be worse than Magor yeah yeah so just FYI, not really spoiler. This is past history, but when they do name check Visenya and Magor, Magor was real bad. He was real bad. I mean, way worse. So than I Dan. have gathered. <laughs> Hot take six. This is literally just Rhaenyra time. She is a little sassier than I was expecting from the Realm's Delight, which is her nickname in Fire and Blood. And up until the end of the episode, like I mentioned earlier, her relationship with her father seems more fraught than I was expecting. Now, that's not to say I don't absolutely love Millie Alcock in this role or don't like what they're doing with young Renera. I actually am super, super enjoying all of it. I loved her coming in on the dragon and her mom being like, take a bath, you stink. And she goes in to be the cupbearer for her dad at the small council meeting. And he, her father sniffs her. And he just says, on dragon bag. And it's like a little weird, but it's also hilarious. Because you're Targaryens. 
of course she rides her dragon. So you Yeah, know. what do you guys think dragon smells like? That was what I was wondering. This is not addressed in the books. I would guess it's like smoke and fire and Yeah, like sulfur or something, you know. It's never really addressed, but it would be a combination of like everybody loves a campfire smell, but sometimes it's too much, right? When you're sitting at a campfire all night long and you go in the next day and everything about you, like you have to shower and those clothes have to go in the wash because everything about you stinks of campfire. But then I would say add the smell of like rotting meat to that because it's not like they brush their teeth. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. The dragon keepers had those poles though. That might be one of their jobs. Brushing their teeth. Brushing their teeth. I, I mean, can see that. Wouldn't they? Wouldn't yeah, exactly. Man. I mean, you, if you had to work with dragons all day, you'd be like, okay, we're gonna do something about this smell. Yeah. <laughs> Guarding Manira, she seems awesome. I always uh tend to root for the female characters, especially in fantasy settings. I think mostly because I'm someone that always wants to kind of root for the underdog and in a setting like this women unfortunately end up being the underdog a lot so i hope she goes on to do amazing things um i get the feeling that her being named the heir is not going to go that that easily I, I i get the feeling that not everyone in that room that swore to be like okay sure is going to end up being like nah never mind or at least half of them are i also am interested to see how the show because i know that they casted an older rhaenyra as well so i'm interested to know are we going to have like five episodes of young and then five episodes of old or are we going to jump back and forth i'm interested to see how they handle all that i couldn't tell you number of episodes but i don't think there's going to be jumping back and forth i think it's going to be x number of episodes for young rhaenyra and x number of episodes for older Rhaenyra. I mean, I don't know for sure, but my guess is it, it's going to be a little more heavy handed on older Rhaenyra because they've already pushed this story forward quite a bit. I mean, her, her mother's already gone. She's already been named the heir in episode one. So I think there's going to be an age up. You might be right. It could be five full episodes, but it'll for sure happen. I, they're not going to go back and forth. And, and to be honest, I'm okay with that. I think that the idea of starting with young Rhaenyra and then just pushing it forward. And the thing is like, none of the, none of the male actors got recast. It was only Allison and Rhaenyra who did as far as I know. That's interesting. Well, because they're so young though. I mean, they're, yeah, they they're are, yeah. 14. So it's going to be enough of a time skip. The time frame in the, in fire and blood is like super complicated. So like, I don't know how you would remember it. But there's no way they're going to follow that in the show. Like, they're going to have to approximate it for stuff like that. You well, know? it's no. a shame we're only going to have Millie for around for a little while. But maybe they'll give her the Game of Thrones treatment and, like, cast her as, like, a Targaryen cousin Something in a couple else. of seasons. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. To be honest, I'm also super excited for the fact that Emma Darcy, who they cast as the older version of Rhaenyra, is non-binary. So I love that. But am I the only one who noticed her Rhaenyra's friendship with Allison and the definite kind of sapphic undertones there? Because if not, don't at me. But because I have no, I noticed it. Yeah, I definitely noticed it. I've never been a teenage girl, so I don't know how much of using your friends as pillows goes on, but it, it was there. 
it was there. Well, I guess when I was a teenager, no, that wasn't something you did, right? But it's something I do with my friends now. And if I had felt like that was an okay thing to do as a teenager, I probably would have done it then. So people are a lot more open to either saying, no, I don't want physical contact or open to, yes, you're my BFF, like lay on my lap. Now I cuddle with my, my femme presenting friends all the time. Like we'll just be sitting on the couch watching stuff, like all close so their arms are at each other. It's totally normal to us. But I would have done that as a teenager because that wasn't okay back in the 90s. <laughs> I am old. <laughs> I can remember the 90s, Tara. <laughs> back when we had Blockbuster. Exactly. Dial up internet. Try to imitate, imitate a 2400 baud modem. <laughs> I really loved Rhaenyra, like, because, you know, again, same thing. It's like, ever since I was very young, I've always had, like, like the first superhero I was ever into was Wonder Woman. Like, every hero that I've had throughout my life has always been, like, some element of a strong woman or something like that. And even when they had, like, Daenerys in Game of Thrones, like, I didn't care what evil she would have done. I would have followed her to the grave. You know, and just been like, whatever, just because of what she went through and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I think that with uh, with Rhaenyra, they're doing like a good job on kind of doing that little bit of a slow burn. But, you know, they definitely have that that element to her, almost like the way uh, Arya Stark it did, like later later down in the, in, in the show where it's like, OK, you can see that this person is, you know, not just your typical, you know, like girly girl you know like there's something to her there's something more strong about her even though it hasn't like manifested yet completely but you can like feel it like you can just see it you know so yeah 10 out of 10 i like her 10 out of 10 targ eyebrows for one of the targaryens who actually has okay eyebrows in this show Uh, (laughs) 10 out of 10 for her eyebrows yeah hot take number seven Apparently, the Song of Ice and Fire is some secret passed down from Targaryen to Targaryen. Knowing that Martin is as invested and involved in this show as he is, I am okay with this. But I'm also a little bit like, where did it come from? Maybe it's just them trying to make a point. I don't know. So in that interview I referenced earlier uh, with Ryan Condal, he actually said that that was something that George told him to put in. That was that was a George nugget. So I don't know if that's a, a, a bit of trivia that he's just kind of been holding on in, in his noodle all this time or what? I mean, I love the idea of that, honestly. I do not dislike the idea that this is a thing that they talk about, particularly because... R plus L equals J came about because Rhaegar was obsessed with the idea of having an heir who was ice and fire, right? So I about that actually. That's really interesting. The show obviously they show us that Rhaegar and Lyanna were married and that John is legitimately a Targaryen, but it, it I mean, it's 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 a TV show, and and as Game of Thrones did, they glossed over a lot of fucking stuff. So no, but that, 
I mean, and there's other things that happen in the history that that are very much like they're all trying to make this prophecy come true, right? So even if there wasn't this, I, I'm glad that you found that article because that's something I actually haven't seen, that this was actually a Martin Nugget that he said, yes, put this in. But even without that, I wasn't against this idea because I do think it makes some other things that happen way later in the history, like way later, honestly, than this show is probably ever going to cover, make more sense. It's stuff that is between whatever this show is going to portray and what happens in Game of Thrones. But yeah, it definitely makes Rhaegar's obsession with Lyanna and them getting married and having a bebe <laughs> make a lot more sense. Okay, Moira. <laughs> no, I mean, it really makes sense with what you get in, in Fire and Blood about Aegon the Conqueror, too. The, You know, that he was, you know, motivated by something more than just like, hey, I want to take that over. Yeah. It's like, you know, the Targaryens had kind of had the, you know, they'd been sitting there on Dragonstone with dragons for hundreds of years, and they had never decided to just go and conquer Westeros, even though obviously... You know, you've got a bunch of dragons. They don't have a bunch of dragons. You can conquer it. But the fact that they didn't that they didn't do it until his time has always been kind of a thing that people wondered about. And now, you know, because, you know, yeah, I guess we have that answer from George R. R. Martin that, you know, yeah, he, he had those one of those dreams, which, you know, various Targaryens get over the years. You know, often they misinterpret them, but they have them. Often everybody misinterprets prophecies and dreams in this series, but I this one seems pretty legit. I don't know. Not 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 to say that there weren't some issues with it, but you know. <laughs> I mean, this was my favorite part of the episode. I nerd out on the prophecy stuff in any kind of fantasy setting, like I was talking about earlier. I mean, in Game of Thrones, we had so many, you know, and 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 I know of a lot in the books too. The dragon has three heads. Daenerys will know three great portrayals: one for blood, one for gold, one for whatever the other Love. one was. Right, right, right. Um, of course, all the stuff surrounding Azora High and the prince that was promised. We had the Maggie the Frog stuff with. Uh, Cersei Lannister, you know, you'll have three kids and gold will be their shrouds. I love that stuff. And like you said, Tara, a lot of times people don't get it right. I mean, we saw Melisandre putting all of her eggs in the Stannis basket, thinking that all these things she was seeing in the flames were about Stannis and come to find out she was utterly wrong. Uh, the first kind of prophecy thing we got in this episode was <clears throat> the one I read out earlier where Viserys was talking about how he dreamed of having a son and how he would be the heir. And by the end of the episode, you're kind of left convinced that he was wrong about that because now his wife is dead, so he's not going to have a son. Now, I know men get remarried all the time, so maybe he'll have another son. Again, I'm unsullied. I have no idea. But this one in particular I thought was really, really cool because the entire show, obviously, is about the Targaryens. But Ramin Jawadi, who is the composer, he was the composer for Game of Thrones, and he was brought onto this series as well. He makes music specifically for each house and sometimes for specific characters. The whole show is about the Targaryens, but they waited until this moment to play that Targaryen music from Game of Thrones. And that shit gives me chills. I don't know why. I'm a nerd about it, but I loved it. I loved it. 
Oh, I mean, Rami Jawadi's his stuff is just amazing. Really as much as I hated this just ended season of Westworld, he did a stylized version of Pyramid Song by Radiohead, which is I would say it's like in my top favorite songs and it's definitely my favorite Radiohead song and he's amazing. Him and Bear McCreary, both of them. Yeah, I still yeah. listen to the BSG soundtracks all the time. Yeah, no, nobody compares them. I mean, and the music in this episode was, it, it was good, right? But it was at the very beginning and the very end that it really like hits you. I mean, at the very beginning for me, it was the Game of Thrones theme music, but just slightly different. Right. And I kept hoping for that theme song. But... Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the very end, the end credits, it was just straight up the Game of Thrones theme. Yeah. Just as we've always known it. The one thing that that struck me was that Viserys mentions like, you know, that the dragons, the dragons had, were the thing that they trifled with that brought about the doom of Valeria. Back in the, in the main Song of Fire books, there's a couple of sort of hints about like what really happened with that and what really caused the doom of Valyria. And it's, you know, without, I don't know, I don't know how spoilery I'm, I'm going to be, but I'll just say it's, it's not what, it's not what Viserys says there. So I just thought that was really, that was really cool that they threw, that they threw that little bit in though, just because like the Targaryens would think that that was what happened. Like it made it made a lot of sense because the actual story is is different. So that that was a moment that was really like you know my like weird lore brain like really really went off there. I was like, no, we know from this and that that that's not what happened, Viserys. Why don't you know this? Well, of course he doesn't know this because you know he's never uh, he's not Arya Stark. <laughs> just to give to give a, a little hint on that, but. Yeah, that was really interesting. I mean, it, my unsullied knowledge of that event was it sounded like it was more of a natural disaster, like volcanoes and earthquakes and everything else happening all at once. Um, I could be misremembering, but yeah, it's interesting that he blamed it solely on the dragons. That might also be part of the idea that dragons do die off. A big portion of that is this is what starts that stone rolling down the hill and gathering that moss, you know, in the opening where they're doing the great council at Heron Hall. Yeah, sure. Everything comes out of that. And like Rainey's obviously isn't happy, but she's less not happy than she was in the text, let me say, because there there was also like a son in the text that her and Corliss were trying to say like, well, our son should be up there too. If you know, if you don't want a woman, we have a son, but it still comes from the female line. So that right. that was something that was left out of the great council scene in the show, which I don't disagree with. It's too much information, right? I don't really have a problem with shows cutting out extraneous information if they do it in the right way, which I think they really did at the beginning of this episode. But that whole great council thing, it really started that boulder rolling down the hill, gathering moss. Well, yeah. And on that point, now that you say that, it's pretty thematically appropriate that they had that conversation where they had it in front of the skull of a dead dragon. They do know their themes in these shows. I won't say that they always nailed them in Game of Thrones, but after this episode, I have high hopes. I really do. I really do. So on that note... It's time for our favorites roundup. Talk about your favorite things in the episode here. Matt Smith and the Dragoon armor, hands down. 
<laughs> my favorite scene, the jousting, all that stuff, you know, and the ladies putting the little reader thing and they're asking, you know, like that was to me, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what it was. It was great. I was probably, I mean, really, I guess in the, in the grand story of things, themes, it was like the dumbest thing really in the entire episode, but I definitely appreciated it the most, I think. Actually, that's not even true because when Damon asks for Allison's favor, yeah. like she's a high tower, he is trolling good trolling. old Otto. Yeah. Trolling. Real hard. Yeah. He's Love a big that. ass troll. <laughs> yeah. So good. So I wrote down a list of four things, but I've already talked about most of them. The prophecies, love it. I'm a nerd for that. The Targaryen music coming in at the end, Chef's Kiss. All of the excellent talent that came over from Game of Thrones is what really makes me excited and optimistic that this is going to be a great series. Of course, we have Miguel Sapochnik, who I talked about earlier, probably the best director Game of Thrones had. He produced what are, in my opinion, the best two hours in television history, which was The Battle of the Bastards and The Winds of Winter, uh, season six, episodes nine and ten. Ramin Jawadi, um, also David J. Peterson, who is the linguist, he he invented Valyrian and all that stuff. So um, I'm, I'm really excited to see all of that Excellent talent come over. And last, in my notes, I wrote down Sir Kristen Cole, and I drew hearts around his name like the middle school girl that I truly am. <laughs> oh, you won't be the only one. <laughs> Just you wait. Just you wait. I will say this. David J. Peterson. So Game of Thrones, I believe Dothraki was the first time a series had actually hired a linguist to create an entire language for a TV show because Martin only inserts a few words here and there in the books. So he was actually a guest at Ice and Firecon this year and just super smart guy, great with the fans. And he did a panel for us where he couldn't give us House of the Dragon spoilers, obviously, but he talked all about the High Valyrian that he created. I'm yeah. so glad that Game of Thrones brought him in in the first place to create Dothraki because that has led to us actually getting, not everybody is Tolkien, right? And yeah. Martin is not Tolkien. Very, very few people are Tolkien who creates an entire Elvish language. <laughs> So this has been a huge step up in fantasy slash high fantasy television because of Game of Thrones hiring him to create Dothraki. So. Sure. I mean, you want to talk about world building. These are the building blocks for that. Yep. 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 Absolutely. The thing that really jumped out to me was just Rainies and Corlys. Just like them sort of like looking around at all this like Targaryen nonsense that's going on and them just kind of being like, oh, these people. Like there was a lot of like little eye rolls and looks between them that were all just perfect. And I, I loved all those. And, you know, obviously knowing, you know, more about those characters, yeah. you know, it was a bigger deal to me. But the actors seemed to really play super well. Like I immediately bought that they were like an old married couple that, you know, had seen all this bullshit before and just we're just we can't believe we have to sit here and watch this stupid tournament <laughs> and like look at these kids playing at war that was one of my favorites also in just the scene where allison goes to to comfort quote you know put whatever big quotes you want under that the king and she goes there and you know she's got like her fancy dress on that her dad told her to wear Blech. like it's like yeah 
Good old Otto. Yeah, and I mean, and Otto, in, like, in that beginning of that scene, you know, he's all, like, lovey-dovey with her. He's like, oh, I love you. You're, you're my daughter. Like, go dress sexy for the king. <laughs> and, like, just the sort of, like, manipulation and creepiness of that scene was like, oh, yeah, that's 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 it. That's uh, that's where we're going with that. It's but, good old sorry. Otto. I agree. I love the Rainies and, and Corliss interactions i'm very much excited to see more of corliss i i feel like his stuff in this episode was mostly just him and rainies playing off of each other and also him getting just kind of brushed aside in the small council but i love the character love the actor and can't wait to see more of that you see their kids at the tourney too was it both of them, or was it just Lena? No, they were, they were both there. There's like a scene where they grasp each other's arms. They're so excited about the tourney. I did see Lena. The wigs were a little bit bad on the kids. Like, on Corliss, it looks fine because he's older, right? But on them, it's right, like they yeah. put an old they put an old woman's wig on Lena's head. And I'm like, <laughs> come on, guys. Have you not learned from the Viserys and Rhaegar situation? Because you don't really... Do you ever see Lena and, and Corliss in the same <laughs> shot? Did you use Corliss's wig for your, his daughter? Come on, guys. I give Lena's wig <laughs> 0 out of 10 Targ eyebrows. <laughs> right there with you. <laughs> right there with you. She does deserves better. Lena Valerian deserves better wigs. <laughs> Quote that, please. Let's, let's start a movement about it. Yes. Speaking of Lord uh, Corliss, I wanted to ask you book readers. I noticed in the first small council meeting, he passed up on like having any wine poured into his cup. Is there anything to that? Is he sober or... Was there something in that meeting in particular he was trying to pay careful attention to? Do you think there was anything to that? I I almost wondered if that was him just being super cautious, like, you know, I don't want these assholes to poison me. I don't know about poison. I, For me, I think it was just that he, he was bringing the dry takes. <laughs> Not the not hot takes. He was bringing the shit that nobody wants to hear, right? No one wants a dry D. (laughs) (laughs) A plus plus. (laughs) So he was bringing the shit that nobody wanted to hear. So I think that he was passing over just because he was like, I got to talk about some serious shit, y'all. That's it. Because he is, he is the sea snake is what they call him. He's been on nine voyages all around the world of Planetos. But now he's got to be serious, right? Like he can't be sort of piratey Corliss anymore. He has to be serious small council Corliss. So I, I think it was mostly just him being like, I got to tell you shit you don't want to hear. And I don't want to be drinking when I'm telling you this. Like, maybe you guys will take me seriously this time. And they don't. They don't. Yet. Yeah, you're, you're probably right about that. I just, that, that was just what I flashed to when I first, when I first saw him do that. But like, I was actually a little bit surprised that Corliss was so reserved in those scenes because, you know, like he's the richest, one of the most powerful lords in the kingdom. He certainly could, you know, insist on being listened to, you know, at least until Viserys, until Viserys tells him to shut up. And, you know, he could, you know, honestly, he could talk shit to Viserys for a certain amount and get away with it just because he's such a big deal. But he's playing his own Game of Thrones. Yeah. For me, my favorite 
thing was the fact that we got to meet, if even briefly, and some of them were not even outright named, a lot of important future players, Chris and Cole being one of them. He is going to be very important in case you guys couldn't tell from the fact that he was like the star of the tournament. And then also Masaria. And like I said earlier, I didn't even realize that's who she was in the first Matt Smith boning a sex worker scene. <laughs> I think we actually got her name in the, uh, in the orgy. Okay. She was very familiar with him. So I felt like after the fact, I was like, oh, I should have re- realized that she was somebody more important. But then when she comes to meet Caraxes and she's wearing all white, it's like, eh, okay. Yeah, that's that's Masaria. So we got to meet Chris and Cole and Masaria, who are going to be very big players. It was cool that they put these people out there as soon as they did. It means they're going to move this thing a lot faster than I actually expected which isn't a bad thing. So also, I just want to say, Caraxes is a windy boy. He's very windy, that dragon. He's so windy and narrow, and I love it. He's a windy boy, that blood worm. <laughs> I love it. So as we close out the episode, I just want to give a shout out to the Geek Saga Entertainment Heroes to your patron, Tommy of the TKOK Podcast Network. Thank you so much for supporting us. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for Hot D Takes. Manny and I will be back next week with a new guest to cover House of the Dragon's second episode, The Rogue Prince. Thank you so much, Tara and Manny. I had a great time. Yeah, thank yeah, you guys this, so much for joining us. This was really cool. I'm glad you guys, you know, invited to randos in you're not a rando (laughs) thank you for listening to the geek saga podcast if you like what you heard please check out other geek saga entertainment endeavors including the sagas and sass webcast and podcast and ice and fire con 